discrimination that sex workers face in Europe, I think first of all is the lack of listening to the community, to the sex worker community. When the authorities talk about reinsert us in society, as if we were our criminals, as if we were not participating already in society, you know, with our work, with our economy, as if we had no kids that go to school, as if we had no parents that, that also need healthcare, you know, and I think this is the, the, the biggest discrimination that sex workers face. You're listening to That Feminist File, a new podcast that unravels over 40 years of feminist movements and reimagines a way forward. I'm your host, Gopika Bashi. I'm a passionate feminist at heart, and I also work at AVID, an organization that supports feminist movements worldwide. In our podcast, we tell true stories of women who are part of a global constellation of feminist activism today. Each episode explores unique and interconnected stories of people achieving greater gender justice and human rights. On this episode, we'll hear from two remarkable activists working to advance sex worker rights in Southeast Asia and Europe. They'll share why the only path towards truly recognizing sex work as work is to fully decriminalize it. These fierce advocates will also take us along their journey to becoming trailblazers for the rights of sex workers everywhere. I went to school for uh, nine years in a Catholic school that with the Benedictines. That's Sabrina Sanchez, a sex worker based in Europe. In the 80s, Sabrina was born into a struggling middle-class family in Mexico City. My parents said they worked in the auto industry, kind of okay jobs, so they worked a lot. I remember mostly my mother, <laughs> so she had like the double work, you know, that we remember the other day, you know, that she was still wearing the heels because she was a secretary and she was like giving us dinner and to my father and me like my father of course not doing anything <laughs> like oh he was very tired but no my mother was not tired at all no so she had the the the, the dinner we know how it was and and of course well um inside i've i've always had this um feeling of not belonging of what's going on with me like uh, my trans condition at that moment was not um uh, obvious no it was uh, i felt was something different but you still don't know because uh, nobody in school talks about it there's nothing and when you know uh, about um, about how people refer to trans people to trans women in indian in particular where you uh, don't come out uh, publicly like too loudly about it no in fact that you want to to hide it and until you can't. Sabrina would also often hear demeaning comments about sex workers. So when we were driving at night in the city and when you, you pass with your family and you see the, the sex work zones and I was like, ah, mommy, what's the world is those, those ladies doing there? So, and of course, then you realize that it's like the worst that someone can be. 
I'm following this, you know, the stigma that that society like still puts in in certain bodies. Like mm, when I grew up, uh, and and you know, I I learn who I am and I, I realize who I am, and and that transition from the gender identity, gender expression started in my side. I also had um, my own um, horror stigma. Sabrina was around 21 when she began her transition. She was in college studying communications. When I came up as as trans, then my family were, well, my parents were divorced and I was living with my mom. And then her reaction, contrary to the rest of the the people, was like, okay, now you need to study more. (laughs) Now you need to have these tools, the academic tools that that you can have in order to uh, have more elements outside now that you're going to be like more uh, discriminated against. And um, she supported me through uh, through going to uh, to college, and uh, and of course, but the horror stigma was still there. You know, this horror phobia, and it was like like no, I don't want. I'm not going to be the typical trans that it's a sex worker because I've got to study a lot. Sabrina's grades improved, and she graduated expecting to find a good job. Then life and, uh, and reality uh, hits you in the face when you are out of the um, certain standards that um, for people can be um, far from the ideal, maybe employee, the ideal uh, co-worker, whatever. And then you're realizing that it's really difficult to get a job. When you get an, an interview, a work interview, you do everything, you, you do all the process, and the usual thing that happens is like, okay, welcome, It's uh, you can bring us uh, your legal documents, we're going to start with the thing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and the moment of the, of the documents, there's like, oh, oh, well, don't worry, we will call you, we haven't finished the, the process yet, we're still interviewing people. <laughs> so, and then, well, uh, little by little, it's, um, difficult to get into a job. Sabrina migrated to Spain when she was 25. She hoped to find better job opportunities. But once again, she faced discrimination while applying for jobs. And this time, not only as a trans woman, but as an immigrant. Definitely, that, that was the moment when, when I, with my core phobia, I just went away and said like, okay, it's not a big deal for me, like doing sex with strangers. Uh, I've done it for free in parties or whatever when I'm going out and my thought was that and so like okay let's use this to survive and after coming here and experiencing the last close to 20 years in your experience what is some of the kind of discrimination that sex workers in Europe face well first of all the the, the discrimination the sex workers face in Europe I think, first of all, is a lack of listening to the community, to the sex worker community. When the, the authorities talk about reinsert us in society, as if we were criminals, as if we were not participating already in society, you know, with our work, with our economy, as if we had no kids that go to school, as if we had no parents that, that also need healthcare, you know, and I think this is the, the the biggest discrimination that sex workers face. You know, this lack of humanity, and after that, well, they can come 
many more, you know, since lack of access to housing, a lack of a chance to um, regularize your uh, your migration status uh, through through the work, for example, like uh, like in on any other jobs. Also, lack of access to quality healthcare. Sometimes sex workers have to hide their works, mostly when they are in a gynecological studies, to not being discriminated by the faculty, but that is something that, that also happens. So well, this, this is, you know, this all are uh, layers of discrimination adding, but it's basically, you know, this uh, lack of, of, of a human size and, and listening to what we really want, uh, what we are demanding, and, and, and the, the, the solutions that we, that the we sex workers, can help to provide, and for example, in the fields of trafficking, that it's something that there's. It's always very insistent with us, as if our work was the only reason for the or the only one where where everybody's trafficked, and like it's not existing like in in any other sector. So even that, you know, that we can be helpful, helping with helping dealing with that because we are in the terrain, and sometimes not not even not even that is. Uh, uh, taken in consideration by the governments and authorities. Soon after Sabrina began engaging in sex work, she started having conversations with other sex workers about the hardships they were experiencing. I shared space or virtual space with other colleagues. We were together in a in a forum, and uh, basically it was more like a client forum. But we had like a, our space also, and then we started to change. Well, that what. Around the stigma, we're talking about uh, around, you know, uh, the problems that we have. Working like that sometimes can be uh, very uh, lonely or isolated. And that was our way to to be together, to share also things, and that to, to also to share experiences. And we started to go out like in a very ludic way, you know, let's go to dinner, let's go to dance, let's go to have some drinks. And now this is summer in Barcelona and it's a fantastic weather. So we started to know each other, also to work together, and then realizing that that we needed to get together and and fight for against the multiple injustices that were you know that that happened in a daily basis from neighbors that don't want to do your work and call the police on you until you know everyday abuses. Sabrina's colleagues formed Aprosex an organization focused on normalizing sex work and defending the rights of sex workers. Then I joined later also um, because of our personal situation. I said like, okay, like I'm going to be open about it and then I'm not going to hide that I'm a sex worker anymore. And if I have to become public, I'll be become public. We have to do it because there's no people that show a face, that show that, you know, always to the media representation, no? always like, Hiding the face and, and then with a modified uh, voice that is like more like more terrific. Like say so like no like well maybe maybe it's time that you know and I open about it and just you know I did what what I felt that I I could do you know that was my my part in the bigger struggle. After joining Aprosex, Sabrina co-founded Otras the first unionized sex worker organization in Spain. Today, she works as a coordinator for the European Sex Workers' Rights Alliance, 
Sabrina continues to advocate for sex workers to be treated as any other worker. We entered in sex work because we had no, uh, some of us, we didn't have any other choice to survive. And and some of us, we uh, decided to to stay because we th- thrived also through, through sex work and, and realized that, you know, it's, it's a service like any other with the specificities, but it's a job that if I could have some benefits and I could have like a loan or I could have my, my social health and my pension, and sure, like the conditions would be less horrible. You know, the problem is that we don't have, in a criminalized context, we don't have any options to where to move. Just like Sabrina, KT Wynn resorted to sex work out of necessity. We have the financial crisis for the family. Then also that I need to support my family. In the year 2000, Katie started doing sex work so she could pay for her three sisters to finish school. At the time, sex work was even more stigmatized than it is today. None of the sex workers are talking about the I'm the sex worker and we are facing the, this problem. None of the sex workers are talking about this in Myanmar because of the traditional and culture and social stigma and stigma and discrimination. So nobody talk about that. So I'm the one of the person, the first time I talk about that I'm the sex worker. I identify myself as the sex worker. And then also I start speaking about the sex worker issue, how sex worker are facing the stigma and discrimination within their family and in society and where they are in the day, their daily life. Because of the stigma, many sex workers in Myanmar weren't aware of the HIV risks associated with their work. KT wanted to do something to inform her community. She started working as a peer educator at an international HIV prevention organization. At the time, many sex workers have also the lack of understanding of the HIV, lack of understanding of the human rights, and also the lack of understanding of the access to health services. So I think that it was, uh, I am the, the person who aware about that. I should be transforming my knowledge to the, my peer or the, my friend. So that's why when I was even working in the nightclub, I talked with the, my college and I talked with my friend and I talked with my peer about the HIV and also the understanding about the access to health services. But KT faced discrimination, even within the organization she was working for. I got promotion to be the interpersonal communicator. I was the one of the first sex workers who got promoted to the, this position in the international organization. So who are the senior or me? They are non-sex worker and they are educated people. And treat me that... I am sex worker. I should not be deserved for the disposition. I should not get the disposition with equal with them. So that was how I got discriminated by the my college. And they even say me that they don't want to see them my face. Even though that organization, they talk about how they are working with the sex worker, how they are helping to the sex worker community. But in the reality, 
that was the what I faced in my own experience. In an effort to create an organization inclusive of sex workers, Katie founded the AIDS Myanmar Association in 2007. AMA provides health services and paralegal support to sex workers, and it's Myanmar's only 100% sex worker-led network. Katie takes pride in their bottom-up approach. So everything what happening in the country level, in the grassroots community. We need to have the connection with the regional network and the, the global network. Because most of the policy came from, let's say, from UN. It is came from the, the top down. The UN headquarters made the decision and then they come into the country regional and the national level. But for us is that we go to the bottom up approach. So from the grassroots level knowledge, we go to the regional and then the, we push to the global network to be there, represent on behalf of the local network, local community, regional network to the global message. That's how we want to see the change. One of the ways in which AMA is connected with the international community is through AWID. In 2012, Katie attended one of their conferences in Istanbul. I was presenting about the economic empowerment of the sex worker. Honestly, I was nervous. Over 2,000 participants of AWA feminists, and we are the only 28 sex worker are there. I was quite nervous. However, I did it with the, my experience, I my passion, and my belief on the sex worker, and also how my community are doing for the, their daily life. With that knowledge, I presented to the feminist movement to be there how they have to accept their sex work is what. After that first encounter, AMA received a seed grant from AWID. At the time, Katie's organization only had two staff members. They've now grown to 64 members and continue to work on HIV prevention gender-based violence, and access to justice for sex workers. Katie eventually joined AWID as a board member. I was so excited as my background is sex worker and also I was coming from the HIV prevention, not about the woman right or also the not about the political background. But I was the good learner. I will say that I'm the good learner. And then so I learned from the other board member how they are working on and how, how I can work on the my the sex worker movement to carry the, those experience. So this was also make me to involve the women right movement and the, the what I knowledge I gained as being the AWA board member. And also some of the experience I can also apply to the sex worker movement. And I stay connecting with the AWA. And I, even though after I finished the board member, I stay connecting with AWA. And I stay working with the women right movement in the region and in the country level also as much as I can. So that was the how I my involvement with the AWA. Katie is now the regional coordinator of the Asia-Pacific Network of Sex Workers. As someone working both internationally and at the grassroots level, I was curious to hear what Katie had to say about the changes sex workers need to see. 
I think that for the sex worker is the full decriminalization of sex work. It will be change everything. One decriminalize the sex work and it will be everything is the normal. Sex worker can accept their health services without stigma and discrimination. Sex worker can accept their justice and they will not face the, any social stigma. As of 2022, only New Zealand and Belgium have decriminalized both the selling and buying of sex work. Countries such as Sweden, France and Ireland have adopted a model that does not penalize sex workers, but still prosecutes people who seek to pay for sex services. But by placing the penalties on the buyers of sex, sex workers are also put at risk. Just like KT, Sabrina agrees that the only way to truly recognize sex work as work is by fully decriminalizing it. Of course, we need to make some money. What the client is criminalized, they're not going to come. So they're going to be like the worst people out there. You know, that when we have options, we just don't, don't take them. You know, it's like, okay, I have enough economic support to avoid this client. And, and I don't have the, 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 this need or this uh, urgency because there's the, the, the clients are so scared for basically uh, being clients that sex workers are fighting for pennies. You know, if the criminal is the client, well, you have to surveil the sex worker in order to comply the law. So, and what does help sex workers? Nothing, you know. And now in Sweden, they are proposing, uh, after 22 years, they are proposing to, to raising the, the penal type to fine, to economical fines, to prison time. For me, that's not feminism. You know, for me, feminism is what Angela Davis says, like no prisons, not giving more powers to the prison and putting prison time to people that for what? For getting a, a, a sexual service, a consensual sexual service with another adult and everything. In fact, that that person is a criminal? Really? Full decriminalization would remove criminal penalties for the buying and selling of sexual acts. But as Sabrina notes, there would still be laws against trafficking, rape, violence and sex work involving minors. With the criminalization, we don't mean that there's going to be free for me. There was no regulation at all. It's going to be like the, the jungle. And the mistake is like, uh, like the criminalization is going to allow uh, the, the things that are already a felony or a crime. You know, it's like, no, this, this is already a crime. You know, trafficking is, is already a crime. The minors uh, doing this is already a crime. And we don't want to change it. Uh, we agree on that. But we don't agree that you criminalize the person that is buying our services is because why they don't uh, come up with that situation in, for example, when we buy strawberries. So we know that in Spain, there has been cases of trafficking of really uh, bad job conditions and almost like slavery cases in the fields where they pick up the strawberries. But no one says like, no, we're going to find every person that goes to a supermarket and buy strawberries. We want to find them. Sounds ridiculous. It's you know? the same thing. So the, what we want is like the, that, that any aspect of the commercial transaction of the agreement between adults, that, that we don't want that any part of those are criminalized. 
What advocates like Sabrina envision is far from what's happening in most parts of the world. With women making up about 80% of all sex workers, many are left unprotected and vulnerable to abuse. And although some countries like Belgium are starting to recognize the rights of sex workers, many others seem to be taking a step back. What do you see as the biggest challenge in your activism? Really, the biggest challenge I, I see in, as a trans woman, I, I, I think is this backlash of conservatorism that, that we are facing, that, that this return of maybe the, the, a simple time where we don't have to work around pronouns, <laughs> you know? And of course, that mixed with the, with the trans backlash and also the anti-sex work rhetoric combined always because it's it's mixed always with something that produces fear in people you know sex works of trafficking and and child trafficking child sex trafficking you know things that 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 yes happen of course happen the, the things the horrible things that happen but it's not the is it's not the commonality there are the extreme cases and and those three extreme cases happen because, you know, the way you treat sex workers and the way that the, the is regulated or is criminalized. So it's not the work itself or the act itself that, that it's violent or harmful or whatever. It's like the way we treat the, we treat it and the, the way we deal it. Given your own success and the power in sort of uniting sex workers and doing that sort of work, what are you excited about? What is exciting you about sex worker activism today? Well, it's hard to be optimistic <laughs> these times, but um, uh, what is happening in Belgium now, that they're changing their view to sex work. They realized that we cannot be protected the way, the way we are with, without totally decriminalized and not being taken in consideration of how, which are the, the acceptable working conditions. That is something that is it's happening now in in Belgium, so that's also give me some hope. The people, that the vast majority of people kind of understand that we are part of the society, that we need to have somehow regulation, somehow protections like everybody else. Like we're not asking anything different like anybody, everybody else already has or just achieved like a hundred years ago and, and we are still trying to, to achieve. Hearing from Sabrina and Katie definitely ignited my feminist fire, and I hope that it did the same for you. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to That Feminist Fire so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. This show is made in partnership with Human Group Media. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente, associate producer Fernanda Uriagas, mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. To know more about AWID and to claim your place by the fire by becoming a member of our global feminist community, visit www.awid.org. I'm your host, Gopika Bashi. And I can't wait to catch you all in the next episode.